Zo, dankjewel. Ik ben hartstikke blij in Nederlands te zijn, maar ik moet iets doen hoor. Ik ben gisteravond bij. Vier één. Uitstekend. Oké, nu begin. So, the, ik zal in Engels praten. Waarom? Uh, Oké. Okay. Uh, See. <laughs> There's all this discussion about natural user interface. And I guess um, I keep asking myself, what does it mean? And I guess if I don't know, then I suspect a lot of other people don't know either. And so it comes down to this notion of what is natural why do we care, and what does it mean for us as designers? And so this is a photograph of my younger son. And, uh, and I know from direct experience, because I am an experienced designer and a professional, that when babies are born, their output mechanisms naturally are pee, poop, and um, scream. And their input mechanisms are hear, see, and that's about it. That's what we're born with. And so if that's all we have to work with for natural user interface, we have serious trouble. And it's going to be really embarrassing to use computers in public. So we have to look deeper. And there's one more thing that we have that's natural, that's innate. And it's not the ability to speak, for example, but the ability to learn to speak. We have the capacity to acquire skill. And so, in some sense, I can't think about design, and especially natural des design that's natural, without having a deep understanding of the nature of skill. And that's a longer topic than today, but I thought I'd tell you a bit about it in the quickest example that I can think of that has nothing to do with computers, but has to do when I was a little bit younger. So in 1969, I started at university studying music. And I had not that exact car, but that exact model of car. Mine cost me $100 at the junkyard. Actually, I bought two for $150, made one good one, sold the parts. So I had a MGA 1961 for under 100 euros. And it was a wreck, but it was, if you're 19 and you have that car and you're at music school, it was okay. Now, one of the things when you have that car, besides having to know how to fix it, because it broke all the time, and afford the oil that it leaked every night, was this, the gear shift. How many of you drive a car with a stick shift with a manual transmission? Very interesting. Very strange. Uh, un, uh, not a normal goal. OK, so those of you who don't, uh, it's probably because it, you don't like doing that when you're learning how to drive. And those of you that do take pride in the fact that you don't do that because you learned how to go from stop to first gear. But it takes, we all had that problem when we were learning to coordinate the gas, the clutch, and the stick shift. It was really hard to learn, but when we learned it, it was great. And by the way, with this car, what I really learned how to do is how once you were moving to change gears without the clutch, which, which that was how you really proved that you were a man. Um, you were allowed to say that in those days. Now, Here's the thing. It took a long time to learn to coordinate the pedals, the two pedals, the steering, and the gear shift. So the first thing when you have that car is you get it, then you try to find a girl to put in the seat beside you if you're a man, or who likes girls. Um, and I did that. And the way that every time it happened, well, the first, they would always ask, let me work the stick shift. 
Remember, I fixed the car. They'd say, the first time I said yes. So I'm driving along because what could be simpler? You only have to do one thing, not all the coordination. So I'll work the pedals and steer, dear, and you change gears when I tell you. And you only do that once because there's this horrible, horrible sound. Your transmission is left on the road behind, and then you spend the next two days rebuilding the transmission. Now, why am I saying this? Because there's a really interesting thing. It, even though there's a number of single, simple tasks, pedal of the gas, pedal of the clutch, steer, and move the shifter, each of those is a separate task. On its own, each one is sort of simple, but to actually accomplish the higher goal, all of those things have to work together, and it's really hard to learn. But once you've learned it, the combined task is no more complex than any one of the single tasks. But more importantly, and interestingly enough, if you take one of them away, you can't do it anymore. And it, it, it doesn't decompose. You can't allocate. It's a single gestalt. And I, even with voice, say, now shift while I do this. You make a mess. But it, the, what it says, though, there's, the most important thing about skill is it's an aggregation. And the aggregate has the same weight as the single element that's in it, that, that any one of the single elements that made up the aggregation once you've become an expert. And it does not decompose it does, in the motor sensory skill or at the cognitive level. And furthermore, as this example says, it's all of these things chunking together simultaneously for simultaneous reinforcement. But it's important to remember, like in skiing, that sometimes it's a sequential chunking. It's a sequence of events and not just the simultaneous events. And so almost everything we do about design, if we want to make it more natural, is A, build the skill with the minimum amount of problem learning. The best thing to do is exploit the skill that already exists. And this notion that the higher, the bigger the chunks that we can make use of, the more power we have per unit of, of attention or spent. OK, now I'll start my talk. Because this underlies everything I've ever done, the, those principles about chunking phrasing and aggregation and simplicity. And in some ways, the, most, the only purpose of design is to accelerate when you move from novice problem-solving behavior to expert skill-based behavior. Now, I like this statement, the only true voyage of discovery is not to go to new places, but to have other eyes. And the reason I like that is because it tells me a little bit that almost all of the invention, all the innovation, all the clever things we do um, aren't invented by us. We just find them. They're right in front of us if we just look in the right way. And for me, I look backwards really a lot. I think things move forward. And when I look at the web and read people's blogs, there seems to be this notion that you don't need any education, you don't have to know history, that you can just spontaneously out of nowhere be a genius, start a company, become a billionaire, but in the meantime, just be the person who invented X. That's what people want. I want to be the person who invented X all by myself. I want credit for it. And, and by the way, I'd like to make, become a millionaire at the same time. And it's just a silly, it's a silly way to think. That's not how it works. And so I think it's easier to have a strong sense of the history so I have a trajectory from a point in the past to where I am now, and now I can extrapolate to the future. And I'll explain why, but the main thing is just to prove it. I, for 30 years, I've been collecting gadgets. I, I maybe have the history of PDAs and pen-based computers and mice. I own maybe 150 mice. Um, I'm now writing a book about them so I can give them away to a museum because my wife would like the house back. But, but this is just an image from a museum exhibition of, of some of my stuff. But it's just... Um, it's been collected over a long time. Now, 
we all know that as designers, that the most important thing to do is be a good thief, be a good talent scout to know who to draw from. And that's not a bad thing. Jimi Hendrix did the same thing. So did Picasso, to Brock's ever uh, dismay. But I took Chris Anderson's long tail and just said, let's flip it around, and now we call it the long nose. And this is the long nose of innovation. And, and this underlies my notion of design invention and a lot of the things around creativity. That for me, it comes from both music, design, and, uh, and as a scientist. And it basically says that from the time an idea is first thought of to the time it becomes mature, and we'll just say mature means it's a billion-dollar industry, so it's everywhere, it's at least 20 years. And this is really important to absorb and stick with me, I'll convince you that this is accurate, and I can give you some very solid data. The most important lesson to take already from this is, any idea that's going to reach a billion-dollar industry to be everywhere in the next 10 years is already 10 years old. I repeat, anything that's going to become a huge hit in the next 10 years is already 10 years old. So why are you trying to invent it? Because you'll be, the patent will expire in 20 years. So start here, and you go. Now that ch completely changes how we think about design and innovation. Because what it says is, coming back to Marcel Proust and having other eyes, that the things that will get you there are already out waiting for you. So I've been, I first used the computer doing a film soundtrack in 1971. And, and I've been working, so wow, it's 40 years ago, um, almost. But the, the thing about that is, is that there really is nothing that's happening right now that I didn't know about 10 years ago, that I can think of. That, uh, people, what I didn't know was how, what would be important. But the technologies and the raw materials, I knew about them all. If I knew what they meant, I'd be a gazillionaire. I'd own Amsterdam or something. But the or the, actually I wouldn't own the national team, but I might own Ajax. But the, um, it's really important to think about this. Now, why don't we see them? And how do we put into practical terms Marcel Proust's view? Because nearly all of the nose is below the radar, where it's not visible to most people. It's there if you have the right eyes. It's there if you know where to look, but it's there. It's like gold that's under the ground, and if you know how to be a prospector and then be a miner to, re to, to dig it up, and then to know how to refine it and turn it into gold, and then know how to be a goldsmith to make it worth more than its weight in gold, then you are, you're going to be the lucky one. Not, but, it's, but it's not luck, right? It's there. It's, and, it's, and, 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 the, and it changes. And now it's a question of looking as opposed to, I'm just going to invent. Of course, these things are related. It's about seeing relationships. So let me give an example. In 1984, um, I wanted to make a drum. I had a, was playing electronic musical instruments. I wanted to make a drum that I could hit and drag my hand like that to drive my synthesizer. So we made one. And because I needed to get funding, for the technology to make it, and it wasn't allowed to talk about music, we called it a, you know, some kind of controller for real-time process control. But it was the first multi-touched surface in the published literature. It wasn't the first one in the world. It was the first one that was published. So from 1985, multi-touch was in the public domain. We did no patents. And it was a, right there how we did it, how to do it, for anyone to read, okay? From 1980, we did it in 84, showed it publicly, but we published it internationally by 85. Then 2007, you have the iPhone and uh, Microsoft Surface come out, and all of a sudden, multi-touch is this brand new invention, it's this brand new thing. Now, of course, for those who had never put their head below the radar, it was brand new to them. But being brand new to them is not the same thing as being brand new for the people who are looking below the radar. And so 
And if you look, actually, along that way, a fellow from the University of Delaware did a PhD on multi-touch. More than 30 references in his thesis are from our group. And then he started a company called Fingerworks after he graduated. And then Apple bought Fingerworks. And then he brought multi-touch to the iPhone. So multi-touch and iPhone has a direct path from a drum that had no commercial intention at all. I'm not saying that we invented the iPhone or multi-touch. I'm saying that the process of evolution of ideas, and there were three other companies that had been doing multi-touch that failed. At least two, maybe three. And so I'm just saying that it's a long process, and it takes 20 years at least. The mouse took 30 years, from 65 to 95, before it became everywhere. And, and then we questioned, like, maybe technology isn't moving as fast as we thought. What's moving fast is once it takes off, when it comes above the radar, then it's moving fast. But we don't see the slow-moving part. It's, a, it's, it's just more people see it. And so there's these three phases, the invention part, the refinement and augmentation, and then the productization. And of course, there's some productization over here and so on and so forth. And, but that's basically the trends. And so basically what I do at, say, Microsoft Research is we work mostly here. Then things like live labs work here, and, and then um, product groups or, or smaller companies work there. So it, it's just a way of thinking. It's an attitude of, that maybe changes how we look at the world. And, and, and it basically says the radar is there. The future is already there. And it says, if you believe what I'm saying, then it says, OK, now, always, how do we look below the radar? Even where is the radar, and what are we looking for? It's, and, and that's just the same way, like any other kind of prospecting, you have to figure that out. What's the gold you're looking for? But what I do want to say is that it's really interesting to look at this, because there's uh, on the web archives, there's uh, these TV shows from the United States called the Computer Chronicles. And in 1990, um, you'll find a couple uh, um, programs that were already talking about touch screens and how amazing they were. And, and they really did all through it saying it's this new natural way to interact with computers. As you can see, they're like, it's, look, at the, look at it, it's like a crummy old uh, MS DOS machine type of thing from that guy on the right. That's, that's how old it is. You sort of say, wow, 1990, they already, even on television, they were talking about these natural interfaces that are using touch. The same language we're hearing today. And look how old, look at the guy, how, look how he's dressed. I mean, he's, um, but that's, but it was already old. So here's the thing that's amazing, is that around 1972 and 1974, um, in the south, about a couple hundred uh, kilometers south of Chicago in Illinois, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, they started a project called Plato. And they did two things. They made, out of that came the first commercial touchscreen that I'm aware of uh, from a company called Carol Touch that used infrared uh, um, uh, light sensors across the field. But they also invented the plasma display. And in classrooms for children from five years old right up to through the end of high school, in schools all around Illinois, already in 1972, these terminals were in classrooms all over the place. Now, this is before the PC was around. These were time-shared through data lines to a, to a mainframe computer, but classroom education and basic arithmetic, history, geography, and so on and so forth was in classrooms in the state of Illinois with touchscreens and plasma displays. Monochrome, I might add, just orange. But plasma displays, nevertheless, already in 1972. That's how old. And these were not secret laboratory things. This is in classrooms of normal schools out, like, in the country. And by 78, um, at MIT, uh, they'd already published uh, touch screens that do things we can't even do today, where not only do they sense where you touch, but how hard you touch, but also the force. So if you have shear force pushing up or down or sideways, and also rotational force, or even tilt this way, so you could rock the, you know, the change of the, of the things. Already, all that was published and, and demonstrated. And, and then you have some other things that are really interesting about evolution. You realize some of the problems. And one of the first, if not the first, 
you know, popular uh, workstation that was made by a company called Apollo in 1981. They had a touchpad on it. And it was uh, made by, it was an Elo Graphics touchpad. They put it on, and, and that's what you used, like you do today in your laptop. Like, I think 90% of laptops today have a touchpad. Well, the implementation of that touchpad was so bad, it was incompetent, that everybody who tried it knew automatically that touchpads are a really bad idea. They don't work, and so they stopped using them. And, and they just went, nobody had touchpads. And it's really interesting when you look at what's happened with laptops, when somebody had been long enough that people had forgotten how bad that implementation was, that somebody did it properly. But notice, it's essentially exactly the same technology. It's just how it's done. And so one of the lessons here is some of the biggest successes are things that have proven not to work by normal marketing standards, by people who are ignorant or don't know how to do a postmortem. They attribute the failure to the most obvious part of the technology, the touch, as opposed to incompetent design. Of a, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, we, we can screw, we're one of, as humans, one of the things we're most creative at doing is screwing up good things and making them horrible. And that was a really good example. But the opportunity for somebody here was to see that this idea that was shown was a, not a failure. And while all the competition is thinking it's a failure, they figured out how to do it right. And then they put it in their laptop and then it took off. And then we come to multi-touch. Before our work, for example, there was multi-touch around, but it wasn't there for human-machine interaction. Rather, it was made to make basically like uh, electronic skin for robots so that they could, when they're grabbing something, they could have uh, sense multiple touches. But it's, it's the same technology. It's just on the robot feeling the world as opposed to the world feeling the computer. Right? I'm the thing that's articulated as opposed to the thing with multi-touch. And, and then we have uh, one of my favorite heroes is Myron Kruger. And uh, for those of you who might think that, um, say, Apple invented the uh, pinch gesture, um, let me introduce you to my friend Myron Kruger. And, and watch, I want to turn the lights down for this, but this is real time, 1981, uh, with video capturing his hand and then tr figuring out with image processing where the tips of the fingers are. And so the size and the position of the circle is a function of the, of the pinch gesture. So he's scaling and tracking already in 1983 is when he published, but he was doing it in 1981. And even more, um, he's coming out here and, and watch. The hand comes up, the menu's there. If he puts his finger up, it can sense the finger to make a selection. And now watch, it's, it's really old video. So um, he's going to pull a line, and the line is between the two fingers once he gets it up. He's got the line. So watch, the line is between the two fingers. And unlike any computer even today, the line is elastic from both ends. Instead of just, like every, every rubber band line any of us have used in a commercial product is nailed down at one end. You can only stretch it from one place. Myron demonstrated with this that he could do this stuff, and even rectangles, that they were stretchy from all sides. And by the way, we all know how to do that. That's natural. And no matter how fancy you think your computer is today, you realize none of them can do this. But all of you can do it, but your computer can't, which says your computer doesn't have a natural user interface. It's got bad, pathetic design. And it's like my car, that if everybody was moved from horse and buggy to a car, and we're so excited we can go more than 30 kilometers an hour, we forget that we all have to have circular driveways because there's no reverse gear, and we're so excited, we're so clever, we can just do that, and go, but we can never back up until somebody invents reverse gear. And then all of a sudden you realize, how could we have been so stupid to put up with this crap for so long? And, and, uh, and I kind of feel that way about a lot of the things that we're so excited about how clever we are. No, it's not clever. We can, we can and should be doing much better collectively. And I'll give you another example. Um, I have a watch. In fact, I really do have that watch. Actually, I have several watches, but um, I'll use this watch. Now, this watch is kind of interesting. Uh, come here, because I need you to come, because you can prove that I'm not lying here. 
Okay. Now, it's just an ordinary looking watch, right? It's just got a, it, it's, it's like my other watch, my Tissot, right? It's analog, it's got a little LCD window here, but watch. I push the bottom left hand button, and now it says CAL for calculator. Okay? And now I'm going to draw a 1 on it. Does it stay 1? Yeah. And now I'm going to draw a 7. Yeah, 17. Okay, and now I'm going to draw a plus sign. Yeah. And now I'm going to draw a 3. I think that's right. Yeah, 3. Okay, and I'm just do the equal sign. 20. Okay, <laughs> 17 and 3 is 20. Right. All right. Okay. So first of all, we now know that 17 plus 3 equals 20. But what's interesting is this watch is a calculator watch with a touchscreen on it, and I can enter numbers just by drawing them and the commands just by drawing on the surface. It's kind of cool. So how much does this watch cost? How many? How much? Oh, you've read my articles. $99.95. $100, you're exactly right. Okay, when did it cost $100? What year? Ten years ago, so 2000. Anybody other guesses? Yeah, no, you're wrong. Close. 84. This watch with a touch screen and character recognition was sold commercially for under $100 in 1984. Okay, 26 years ago. Now, what else happened in 1984? The Macintosh, the very first Macintosh, the Macintosh that was useless. It had no hard drive, but it was really cute. I had one, but that's not a slide. It was a fantastic computer, but it wasn't very useful in the first version until you got the hard drive. Now, now think about this for a minute. We're all excited about our new smartphones and different things that have touch on them. And the same year the first Macintosh came out, you could buy a watch for $100 that had a touchscreen that also had character recognition. And now the question might be, instead of how clever we are today, is what the hell have we been doing for the last 26 years? And the second thing is, if any of us are designing touch interfaces and you didn't know about this, because this is part of the tip of the nose, why didn't we? And, and then ask yourself, why might knowing about this watch be useful? How many of you all have a, a, touch, a, 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 a smartphone with a touch screen? All right. How many of you, keep your hands up. How many of you can either tweet or SMS without looking at your watch or your phone on the touch screen? Nobody. What did you just learn from this watch? If you have this watch on or in your hand, I absolutely can write numbers and letters without looking. This watch teaches you from the techniques it used, especially if you didn't use the, if you use graffiti that, that we'd learned from Palm Pilot. So we'll just come mash those two things up. You could enter text and tweet. I could write down your phone number with looking you in the eyes. Or I could be listening to you speaking and make a couple notes. Or I could tweet. Now, you have to ask yourself, do I want to be able to do that? Well, right now, you have no option. You can't do it. Because, and it's not about the technology. But the lesson was under the radar there for any of us to see for the past 26 years. Not the concept. That's even earlier. A working thing that you can buy on eBay if you look really hard. By the way, today, Minimum 2,000 euros. No, no, they're very rare, and they're a collector's item. If you can find one of these for 2,000 euros, buy it immediately. It's the best investment you can make. Uh, it will go up in price, unlike most digital technologies. Um, so it's really interesting why, you see what I'm saying about the past, the future, and the long nose, and, and how, because here's the important thing. Let's say you buy that in eBay, you realize that eBay becomes one of the most valuable prototyping technologies in the world. Because if you think about it, even at 2,000 euros, how much does it cost your company to actually build a prototype of that fidelity? More than 2,000 euros. You just go buy it. And then 
You give it to somebody and say, here, try it. You don't have to believe me. Try it yourself. Have the experience. Don't listen to me. Have the experience. Now, I don't have to convince you. You convince yourself. Um, we started to build these touch pads, won't go on that, but I'll just, uh, out of interest of time, 1986, this is a plaza panel. This is what a plaza panel looked like in the 80s. Uh, it's a variation of the technology that I showed you from Plato. It's a, but look how big that display is. It's a plaza panel, it's big, it's flat, it's monochrome, and it has a touch pad down below, uh, with a, which is also on a display uh, right there. And uh, I photographed that, I think, actually in 1984, the bottom, which is the controller from that. But 86 is when uh, that brochure came from, but it was around earlier. Um, there was a guy named Paul McAvity at Carnegie Mellon who made a touch screen where um, he could sense not only where you're touching, but the angle that your finger comes in. So you can actually point, and so for 3D or other things like that, you could actually use your finger almost like a joystick that's in a position uh, on interacting with touch screens. Now, I, I want to describe a smartphone. Okay, I'm going to describe it. Pretend you don't know anything about smartphones. You've never heard of a smartphone before. Okay, this smartphone is really interesting. It only has two buttons. It has an on-off switch and it has a volume control. So instead of buttons, the entire front of the smartphone is a touch screen. And the way it works, you should turn it on, and on the screen come a bunch of icons. So you just touch the icons and it brings up things like a calendar, your email, um, your address book, and all other kinds of stuff like that, your different applications. And what would we call that smartphone? Well, not, not a computer. What company does that? What, what product do you? It's, it, it, yes, the iPhone might be the thing that we all jump up and down about. And of course, you're wrong. This is the world's first smartphone. I own two of them, and they both still work. It was made in 1993 by IBM and Bell South. And yes, it really does have one big screen in the front that's a touch screen. And yes, it really only has an on-off switch and volume control. And these are the, some of the screens on it. There's the icons and so on. Here's the phone dialer. It had a fax machine in it. Um, it actually let you um, draw. It could use touch or a stylus on it. So you could actually do little notes and drawings. And you could then send the drawings and, and so on and so forth. And what's very interesting about it is, and this is the thing about this, this is why it really is a piece of garbage. And I'm so disappointed. It had no web browser. Now, how could it, they do all that clever stuff and not have a web browser? Because there was no web in 1993. This is earlier than the World Wide Web. Mosaic didn't come out till later that year. Now, let me tell you something. There was a guy at Apple around this time who was designing a PDA with a touch and a pen called the Newton. That guy's name was Jonathan Ive. He went on to design something called the iPod and the iMac and the, and the uh, iPhone. Let's be very clear about something. It is impossible because he is an outstanding designer who absolutely was around then and absolutely, if you look at his work, you know that he's influenced by Dieter Rams. If you look at his other work of the iPod Mini, that he's definitely Walter Dorwin Teague. He, it's a direct quote from there. This guy is an outstanding designer who knows the literature and the history. He absolutely knew about this phone. Now, what's interesting is we're designers, and most of us don't know about it. And furthermore, we've read more articles about the design of the iPhone than almost any other product. And I bet you not one of them has mentioned this. That's like writing about Jimi Hendrix and not mentioning that he plays the blues and that he didn't invent the blues, right? Jimi Hendrix, by the way, did not invent the 12-bar blues, just in case you were under that delusion. But you laugh, and that's absurd, but in design, that's what everybody thinks. Just substitute the blues and Jimi Hendrix with Apple and, and the iPhone, for example, with the thanks. And by the way, I'm not criticizing that any more than I'm criticizing Jimi Hendrix for playing the blues. What I'm trying to say is that these great designers, and I include Jonathan Ive as one of them, knows about the long nose. And my sense is if, if he or Picasso or, or Ram Coolhouse can quote 
the past to make the future, if it's good enough for them, damn it, it's good enough for us, we don't have to invent it from scratch ourselves to prove how good we are. It's not the way it works, but we've been taught, the closer you get to North America, the more you believe this, we've been taught that you have to do it by yourself or else you're not really the genius that deserves all this sort of stuff. And places like the Media Lab have perpetrated that notion that that's, that's how it works. It's not how it works. The Palm Pilot with, um, is another great example of where we don't look. People look at the Palm Pilot, they write books about it and articles, and they say everything about it, the reason it was so successful is that, you know, the graffiti, or it was small, or it was cheap, or it fit in your pocket, or it had so little functionality, that's all important, but there were many other products that had those properties. What was important about that that nobody talks about because they haven't done their homework was about trust. This was a trust sale because up until this time, if you lost your PDA or your phone with data in it, you were sweet out of luck. With HotSync, if you lost this, you'd lost the $200 piece of hardware but no information because you could, the key thing with HotSync was you could photocopy your entire contents in less than a minute with one button push. And furthermore, when you bought it brand new, you didn't have to spend all your time putting all your names in it. You just put it in the dock, and if you had an address list on your PC, you pushed a button, and it was completely transferred in one button push. That's what sold this. It took the complexity out because it realized the real pain point with these devices was trusting the device not to lose your data or or make you vulnerable if you lost the device. And, and you had everything backed up. And then, because you can't photocopy your file effects. You just don't do it. You could on this in one button push. And then there's other things too which are really interesting around um, touch. We started to do, actually I can show this one quickly. Um, back in 93, uh, I was at a company called Alias and we did, uh, um, we did this, uh, this product here, this thing called a portfolio wall. And, and what I wanted was for design studios, you, you might know I, I wrote a book about sketching, but the other part about sketching is you need to be able to share your stuff. And what I found was that in design studios, everybody at film and design studios had stuff all over the walls on foam board. But the problem was when you had electronic assets, it was hard to do. So I said, projectors are cheap. Let's just project on the wall have all around the studio projectors, and then let's have a digital cork board where I can throw things up. And what we did initially was we just gave everybody in the studio a laser pointer, and you could just point at things. And if I pointed at something, so I'll flip this down so you can see. If I point with a laser pointer, and later on we did this on touch screens, if I touch, uh, let's see, this, um, up it comes, right? And so if I touch it again, it goes down. So you go click, click, just simple, simple interaction, up it comes. Um, this is the hockey puck mouse that proves that Jonathan Ive is not perfect. It was a total failure um, because you'd move your hand that, and the mouse went that way. Pardon? Yes, sure. And by the way, I don't criticize. If Apple didn't fail in some of their products, they wouldn't have succeeded. You have to fail to learn. Failure is not a bad thing. It's a necessary thing. Um, you just don't want to do it too often. But, oh, but look, then you swipe. This was shipping in 1993. I think that's when we, no, that's not true. It was, it was 1999. But, okay, so we're, I can make things uh, go down or select them by touch. I can swipe to, to browse. And if I go diagonally up, I get a palette. So that's if I go up, up to the right, so I can start to annotate and draw. Okay, and this was all just, the, the, what I'm trying to say is um, a lot of this stuff has been around and you just put these things together and you can start to have really interesting new products as, as we have seen. Um, we started to do work back in 86 using two hands. My kids used to think this is really funny. I'd say, Dad, why are you going around giving talks around the world? What do you have to say to anybody that anybody would want to listen to? And I'd say, well, you know, I'm the genius. 
that found out that people have two hands and know how to use them. And my little daughter, Katie, she had a list and she said, but, but, but everybody know that. And, and apparently not, because, you know, you, you're like Napoleon. You, you're, with the graphic user interface, you can have your left hand like this because you spend your whole day like so. It's Napoleon Bonaparte uh, way to work. And the only time you use two hands was to type, which is one thing I can do with a pen, with one hand. And, and then the question is, how do you use this stuff? And, well, the first thing was is that uh, my buddy George Fitzmaurice, one of my students, he started doing things where he showed that you could grab something and as you moved it, you could stretch it and change the shape and rotate it. So I could translate, scale, and rotate all in one gesture. Remember what I said at the very beginning about changing gears and chunking stuff together? He's not doing a translate, scale, and rot uh, rotation. He's just trying to put it there in that shape. And it's a single integrated gesture. And you start saying, how do I build interfaces that let me go direct path to the high order concept by using my motor sensory skills and the proper technology? And that's where we're starting to get. Um, we started um, at Hiroshi Ishii in 92, 94, working with me in the lab in Toronto. And we made this drafting table that was about a one meter diagonal rear projection display. It just had an Apple II FX with, a, with an overhead projector and LCD shining up. It had a high-resolution stylus, and we had a camera above that just sensed, like I just copied Myron Kruger, did what Myron did, looked at this part of the hand, could see how open and closed that gesture was, what's the position here, and where your hand was over top of a graphical object. You could grab it and move it around, and, and now you can start to manipulate the world like you would um, in the physical world. But this was a case of simply copying Myron Kruger's work. I'm copying Myron building on his stuff. And then it, it, these things come into things like surface. So let's take this thing where you have this progress where it just goes over the years from Myron's work and a bunch of other people's work. And we start mashing things up. And then gradually you start to be able, by 2007, to make something like surface. But that's not good enough. Because whatever he says to me, well, surface is cool, but it's really expensive. It's really complicated. And, uh, you know. I want it cheaper. And so I said, so how do you make it cheaper? And uh, what is that? Well, here's a way. First of all, all surfaces are, in, in the current farm, are some projectors with a camera, with cameras, a projector with some cameras that look and sees the shadow on the rear projection screen. And that they can sense stuff. So let's turn it upside down. So now it's top projected. And let's put the projector and the camera into your smartphone. And then every image you project on the table is, becomes a touchscreen. And everything I showed you, like on the portfolio wall or what you already do, you can do with that finger and, in fact, somebody else's. Now, it's really interesting. If you think about it that way, you do a few things. Because you recognize, hey, projectors are getting smaller. They're getting cheaper. They're the, the problem with smartphones is they're small or else you won't have it with you. But if they're small, that means the screen has to be small. And then you say, well, hey, projectors are interesting because they're the only technology where the display is bigger than the device. That's their interesting attribute. The display of a projector is bigger than the device. Trust me, the projector you're looking at now is not 10 meters across. Okay, It's about that big. And then you realize, what's the social implications of that? It's that it turns your smartphone into the most ubiquitous technology for social computing, social media, but face-to-face -face social media. So I'm at a restaurant. I don't have my laptop. And it would be really horrible if I took it out because it's rude. But if I have my phone, I can just go bang, bang. And you and I can both interact with what's there for the first time in a way that's non-intrusive. You sort of say, well, that's a nice science fiction, Bill. But what, what does that mean? Well. Um, sorry, I, I just always get interrupted, so I have to take pictures of people to remind myself where I was. Oh, oh man. Actually, that's good. I took a video. Um, 
Okay, turn the lights down. So the point here is that in my hands, I have a, phone, a, a camera that has been on the market for 11 months. It started selling in November 2009 for $400 on Amazon that has a projector built into it. So, okay, we can turn the lights back on. Now, there's a couple lessons here. So Nikon makes this. How many people knew about this? How many of you had put two and two together and said, hey, if it's in the camera, I could put it in my, in my mobile phone, and if it's in my mobile phone, I could use the lens to also see the fingers, connect the two, and now I've got surface. And now everything I project on is touch. Oh, and by the way, I also have augmented reality, because if I point it at some thermostat in the hotel that I don't understand how to work, the camera can recognize the thermostat and then project annotations to tell me how to use the damn thing. And, it's, and, and I don't need to wear all this looking because I'm going to point it with my hand. And the point here is, here's proof that it can be done commercially. This is to last year what this was to 1984. And again, it's where instead of eBay being the most useful prototyping tool, so is Amazon. And the question is, you just need to see these things, as I said, from the Proust sense, see them through different eyes. Now let me just finish up with a, a, a almost finish up with a quick demo, to say, well, how does this stuff come together? And it'll come together way better if I find my glasses. So let's, uh, So one of my colleagues, a group of teams, uh, at, there's a, um, an incubation group at Microsoft Research that did some work on, uh, on a paint program. And this is a really neat little program called Gustav. And um, I'm running Windows 7. I'm on a, just a standard Hewlett Packard uh, tablet PC that has a touch screen and a pen. And the main thing it's got on it is this is, a, this is not a product, it's not an announcement, it, it's, not, it's just an experimental piece of software, and we built, a, built by another group uh, from the incubation group, and then my group uh, that I work with, we just helped them with some drivers, and uh, so I can paint, okay, whoopee-doo, and I mean, I can't paint, I can put paint on a brush, but um, if you knew how to draw, you'd be really good at this. Um, I can pick another color, and I can bring it in there. And, uh, and you notice when I smear with my finger, and now I'm using my finger, see? Now let's bring another color just to make this clear what's going on. So bring in a bit of green. Now watch. See how the colors mix? Because actually what's going on here is uh, it's physically modeling the physics of the paint. And you can see that because if I pinch and zoom with my other hand and rotate, you can start to see um, what's going on. Now, the notion of what's going on here is that if I hold the pen still and move the page under my hand, I can paint by pulling the paper under the brush rather than moving the brush over the paper. The, now, why would I do that? Well, because I can. It makes no sense except to show that I can do this, I can do that, I can do that, and I can do that. If I can do it, the computer should be able to sense it. And all I'm trying to say here is that a lot of the arguments we hear today is anybody who has a pen, okay, here's the one quote, if it has a pen, they blew it. Or if, if God intended us to use pens, he would have made us give us long, skinny fingers. Right? This is the type of nonsense, misinformation. Of course, that's, we know the difference between marketing nonsense and reality. The point is, the argument is that there's the touch people and there's the pen people and they're arguing like that. It sounds like uh, Fox News in the United States, right? We have these stupid things. No, it's not about that. We have two hands. Remember I said that's what I told my kids why? And the important thing about our hands 
is that each one is a very specialized instrument. My, I'm right-handed. This hand is not a poor approximation of that. This is just as specialized as this. Remember I said about coordinated action and chunking, and that's the whole thing about skill and changing gears and doing stuff like this? Let me tell you why women's buttons are wrong. It's really important, because it relates to everything I'm talking about. Do you know why your buttons are wrong? You're a woman. Did you notice they're wrong? You just got used to wrongness for so long, you can overcome it. But you're handicapped compared to a man. And you didn't even know it. I will explain it. I was hoping you would ask. There's a guy named Yves Guillard. He's a cognitive psychologist. Uh, he lives in Paris. And he has a theory, it's called the bimanual, it's a, it's, a, it's a kinematic chain model of bimanual asymmetric action. Now, everybody repeat that. The kinematic, <laughs> the inverse, the kinematic chain model of bimanual asymmetric action. This is symmetric bimanual action. Asymmetric is this. Here's the rule. Think about threading a needle on things. Rule number one, the non-dominant hand moves first. The non-dominant hand sets the location for the activity. Okay, I'm now holding the buttonhole. The dominant hold hand follows and does the fine motor action to do the task. So I reach and pick up the needle, I put the needle in place, I grab the thread, I take the thread to the needle, and I do the fine stuff here. That's, that's the rule. That's how men's buttons work. It's not how women's buttons work. And I'll tell you why. Because when buttons first came out, they were very expensive, and only rich people could afford them. Rich men dressed themselves. Rich women had somebody dress them. And so the buttons were set up for the convenience of the woman who dressed them, not for the person who wore the clothes. And just through history, it's continued on. But what I want to point out is that, that remember how hard it was when you were a little child. If you have children, watch them try to learn to button. Watch them how they start to try shoelaces. And you realize some of this is fairly hardwired. That starts to be natural. There is a natural, for right-handed people especially, it's stronger than for left-handed, there's a natural way of sequence and of task, assignment of tasks to the different hands. And if we understand that, then we can choose when to use a pen, when to use touch, when to use the task to the left hand, what task to put to the right hand for left or right-handed people, and we can start to make things that work, and we can gang them up. Now, the interesting thing about this is we realize that all of these are things, if we have this knowledge that's out there under the radar, we can apply it to design to make things which are natural because they reflect the way human beings actually work and, 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 and operate. Because even though some of our skills may not be natural, we can, we, un we can understand that through a lifetime of living in the everyday world, they actually have acquired those skills. And so we can exploit them and save them from having to learn them. Now, let's go. Let's just finish up. So we just did this thing called Connect. It's a video game controller that uses a 3D camera. And, and you know, it's, you'll see stuff in the press, and it's all cool. And you can sit in front of your TV in the living room and use it. And many people will say, hey, that's a natural user interface. But I want to caution you about, again, what's natural. Yes, it, in many ways it is. But remember that slide of the baby at the front? Babies have a habit of growing up. So my first slide, um, this is the same kid. He's older now. And we're flying to Las Vegas. And so what I've got him doing is pretending that he's using Connect on exactly the same video game on the airplane, on the seat back. So pretend there's an Xbox controlling the same video game, and he's in exactly the same position, but he has to stand on the airplane seat to do this. Do we all agree that that is wrong? especially if you're sitting behind or in front or beside him, and especially when you're landing, right? So it's not Connect, it's not video games, it's not even that video game on that video controller for that person that makes it natural or not. 
The context, social and physical, also controls that. And the other part about this is when I talked about skills, this is just a reminder to say there's, there's, there's social skills that are become natural in a sense that are culturally dependent, right? Um, but, you know, some of them have to do with proximity. Like, we know each other, so this isn't too bad for him, but if it was with you, it would be really uncomfortable. For, but, but these are things we have, to, our designs have to reflect that. So we need to know about social skills as well as cognitive skills as well as motor sensory. And so just to wrap up, the reason all of this is important is this is what worries me. We have all these battles about this, this computer is better than that computer, and this graphics interface is better than that one, or this phone is better than that one. And I just think, if we believe that those are the arguments that are worthy of us as design professionals having today, we're really in deep trouble. Because actually, if a company can't put out a decent phone or a decent thing, they're, the differences are, yeah, there's different, and yes, there's preferences, but that's not where the problems are. The real problems going forward are not with any single device, but in the complexity, the potential complexity of the larger ecosystem of technologies that, that we function in, and how these devices, so it's not about just this device or that device, it's how this device works with that device, whether it's from the same manufacturer or a different manufacturer. It's the complexity of the ecosystem and, and what are the social conventions. Why can't you, no matter what smartphone you have, point at the screen and grab my slides? Why can't you pull your touchscreen up and use the touchscreen as a remote pointer so you can point at a, a spelling mistake on my slides? For example, why was it easier on a Palm Pilot to walk up and pass my business card with the IR link than it is with Bluetooth? And why is it that with the, with the Palm Pilot, I had far more security because I had line of sight and I knew, whereas with Wi-Fi where it goes everywhere, I have no idea, so I don't trust it as much. And, and why aren't those things about the interoperability taking more of a point? It's about the society of appliances and how they work today, which is the new frontier that we need to, as a community, to most spend our time working on. But even here, we have a lesson to learn from the long nose. And so there's a picture of my last smartphone. Um, you may have heard there's a new smartphone. Um, but, but actually, that isn't my phone. My, I just bought a $28,000 phone. And it's called my car. And when I pick up my smartphone and walk into, I'm talking. I could be talking to you. I'm talking to Yanis. I walk into my car. And I start up the car where the stereo comes on. The car will automatically turn off the stereo and route the phone through the car. So you're saying, where is the phone? The car is my phone. Because of the speakers and the microphones and everything are there. The only thing my mobile phone has in it that's the phone is the phone number. And even that, I'm not sure. But what I'm really trying to say is this. If you look at your car, if you have a modern car, and how you're it's a building with embedded technology, and you have this personal private technology you bring into it. There is a seamless or near seamless adaptation of one into the other, so it changes behavior based on context. And, we, and, and I, all I'm trying to say is that, for me, looking at how cars are built and the technologies within cars, if you think of a car as a building, it's got a roof, it's got doors, it's got seats, it's got a furnace, it's got an entertainment system, it's just a very special purpose building. Our offices and our homes are going to be like cars are today. Take the good and the bad, what can we learn from it? And that's the embedded part. And then we've got our personal technologies, like our MP3 players, our watches, or whatever we bring into the car. How do they adapt and then start to leverage the technologies that are already there in a way that's secure, private, seamless? And I don't care what company it's from. It has to work in the larger ecosystem in exactly the same way. If you have a Ford or a Ferrari, you can still drive an Amsterdam. And, and it doesn't, you know, they don't just let Fords or, or, or DAFs drive down in the Netherlands. Well, DAFs aren't there anymore, but... So, there's just a way to think about things, about how evolution works, where we can inform ourselves. The, Gibson says, right, William Gibson says, the future's already here, it's just not uniformly distributed. Take that into account in the sense of what I'm saying about the long nose. It's another way to say the same thing. So we we'll talk about natural UI, and this is the way to think about it, is an ecological sense, because that's what I'm finishing up with, is that this, it's the large ecology and the relationships within that society of appliances and the ecosystem. Natural UI is simple. It's as simple as nature itself.
And of course, nature isn't simple, but we understand how to study it from an ecological sense. And that very same approach is precisely how we have to approach the digital ecosystem if we want to succeed and really make the world meet the following criterion. The litmus test for successful design, it seems to me, is as follows. Will this new technology that I'm about to introduce into society make the world simpler for people to function in and improve their quality of life, or will it make it more complex? And if it makes it simpler, I'm all for it. And if it makes it more complex, I want a really good explanation as to why you're doing it. But I, I have to understand the question's even relevant before we start. With that, I'm done. Thank you. Um, do we have time for a couple of questions? Yeah, we do have time for a couple yeah. of questions. Derek. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, are there any questions? I'm the man with the mic today. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, any questions? Can, can you give us a, a, a short word on your thoughts on, on, on legacy? I live in a 1920 uh, house, uh, so it's never going to be like a, a modern car. Um, and how, how our modern technology should adapt to that. Yeah, so um, the question if, was this notion, how do you deal with legacies? Because the, uh, I'll tell you what I'm bugged about right now. I'm bugged that, okay, I, I, I've got a whole bunch of videotapes, and so I finally went to, uh, to DVDs, and now all of a sudden uh, I'm telling, like, I've, I've got to buy a Blu-ray player. I, you know, and, and now as soon as I've bought a flat panel TV and everybody's bought that and we're all happy, and... They say, oh, no, you've got to sell it on by a 3D, and, then, and when the 3D stuff comes, it's going to be a whole new kind of, uh, you know. And, and, and I haven't even talked about my house, where that now looks like a mess because where I put the cables and, and uh, you know, and so on. So the point is really germane. And if I had a simple answer, um, I'd probably be already building it. But... The answer's there. I think we um, maybe just need to find other ways to look for it. Um, it's, it's, the nose tells it's there, but you first of all have to say, what's the problem, and ask the question. And now, instead of me just giving you a simple answer, I can give you an answer that sort of says, here's how I'd look for it. And I'd start looking at other things. And so the, what I did for some of these problems is I found a product called the Slingbox. And the Slingbox uh, lets you stream video around. That's not the important part, but they and a couple of people let you use your power mains within your house as, uh, as internet, so I can actually root uh, control and everything throughout the house. I used to do some consulting for Philips uh, in Eindhoven, and, and uh, they had this whole thing about a, a digital data bus and a whole control bus that went through the smart home, and you had to rewire them and all this stuff. And the neat thing is right now is that there are technologies, so I can, as long as my house has electricity, I can distribute all kinds of signals. Uh, Audio, video, high def, as well as control throughout the house and internet, and that's and so a lot of that becomes easier. And the question is now, how do I make? Uh, what do I want wired, and what do I want wireless? And uh, but I didn't give you a good answer, just but I'd give you a sense of the, some of the places where I'd already start to look. But I think it's really interesting to take a look at contrast the architecture of automotive information systems with uh, the things we use in our offices. Did you know that if you, have a new, if you have a new car today, that one-third of the cost of your car is in the computer systems? So if you, how many people here have paid, okay, put your hand up, and I'm going to give you numbers. So everybody put their hand up. Now, okay, you, you sort of already know the answer, so I've taken the, take out. okay, I'm going to start giving you numbers, and when that's the highest amount you've ever paid of your own money for a PC, pull your hand down. Okay, so 100 euros. 500 euros, 1,000 euros, 2,000 euros, 5,000 euros, 10,000 euros. A bunch of you are lying. I expect more honesty from the people I speak with. How many of you have a car that costs 30,000 euros? You have a 10,000 euro PC. They're the liars. <laughs> 
or they haven't looked at the world. So there's a point. If you've got a 30,000 euro car, or if you've got a 10,000 euro PC that you didn't even know was a PC. But the major thing about that PC is it's distributed, it's real time, it has sensor networks, right? It has ambient intelligence. All these buzzwords that we read about in trendy magazines are already in your car. My wife's car, when she walks by it at night, when she's walking the dog, the lights turn on as she passes by it. She walks in, the doors unlock when she approaches it without the key. The car starts by pushing the buttons. When she walks away, it locks, right? None of our PCs are smart enough to do that. None of our PCs unlock and log you in when you're there, but not me. How is it my car is smarter than my computer? Well, it isn't. My car is a computer. It's just a different kind of computer that has a very different architecture that we can learn from in terms of how we think of our own systems. And then we can start to think about it. Uh, I th and the reason, by the way, is that REM Coolhouse has nothing, and OMA has nothing to say about the information systems that go into their buildings. Whereas when Chris Bangle is at BMW, he has complete say, even though most people have never heard of Wayne Cherry or, or Chris Bangle, the designers of the cars. But think about it that way. It's when you integrate, you don't separate the infrastructure from the vehicle or from the building. And cars are absolutely buildings. Yeah. Thank you. We don't have more time for okay. questions. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Buxton. Okay.